This is Sunrise, the who, what, when, where, why, and WTF of Florida politics. I'm Rick Flagg reporting from our forward observation post within mortar range of the state capitol. Today on Sunrise, a damning report in the Guardian newspaper points a finger of blame at Florida Senator Rick Scott for a surge in HIV cases when he was governor. The paper says Scott refused to accept about $70 million in federal funding to fight the disease, and people probably died as a result. In the aftermath of shootings in El Paso and Dayton, a committee in the Florida Senate will start looking into issues related to mass violence. They'll be hearing from law enforcement, academics, and mental health experts. Republicans in the Florida Senate are battling over who will take over as president in 2022, and they're doing it by investing in other lawmakers. Investing, of course, is in quotes. Senators Kathleen Pasadomo and Travis Hudson have donated big bucks to the same three candidates in hopes of getting their votes for Senate president if they win their elections next year. And what in the world is going on at the ABLE Trust? The agency at the State Education Department is charged with helping find employment for persons with disabilities. But the State Education Commissioner is threatening to shut them down. We'll talk with News Service of Florida reporter Anna Ceballos, who broke that story. We'll also have your daily calendar events and another installment in the never-ending adventures of Florida Man. And now the top stories on Sunrise. Years ago, Florida had the highest number of new HIV cases in the United States, 4,783. That's 13% of the national total. Now, a new report in the Guardian newspaper from Britain says former governor and current U.S. Senator Rick Scott is the main reason for that surge. Turns out Florida was forced to return $54 million in unspent grants for combating HIV to the federal government between 2015 and 2017, simply because state health officials did not get approval from the legislature to spend the money. Also in 2015, Scott's administration blocked two CDC grant applications that could have drawn down $16 million to fight HIV in Broward and Miami-Dade counties. Marlene Lalotta, who was the administrator of the HIV-AIDS section at the State Health Department from 2014 to 2016, told the newspaper she believes Rick Scott fueled the epidemic in Florida. Of the 10 states with the highest number of HIV diagnoses, Florida was the only one that saw an increase in new cases between 2010 and 2017, when Scott was governor. Now, a spokesman for Scott says the overall assertions in the story are inaccurate because the legislature never granted budget authority needed to spend that money, so it wasn't their fault. But there's a reason lawmakers didn't know that. They didn't know there was a problem because officials at the Department of Health had been told to run everything they did through the governor's office, and the Scott administration forbade anyone on the staff there from discussing budget concerns directly with lawmakers. Now, Lalata's team actually wrote a plan to use that money in an effort to end the HIV epidemic, but she claims they were stopped at every turn. She calls it criminal and egregious. She bailed on the state after 28 years of service in the health department and is now a regional director of AIDS Healthcare Foundation in New York, which does not have a gag order on its employees. And kudos to Britain's Guardian for scooping the Florida press on a huge story right here in our own backyard. A committee in the Florida Senate will start looking into issues related to mass violence next week. Senate President Bill Galvano ordered the Senate Infrastructure and Security Committee to examine the issues after mass shootings in El Paso, Texas and Dayton, Ohio. That committee is chaired by Senator Tom Lee, and they'll hold a workshop Monday that includes presentations about academic research, law enforcement issues, mental health issues, and judicial system issues. Among the speakers will be Florida Department of Law Enforcement Commissioner Rick Swearingen, leaders of the Florida Sheriff's Association and the Police Chiefs Association, professors from Florida State University's College of Criminology and Criminal Justice, and officials from the Department of Children and Families. But we did warn you, it's a workshop. They will not actually take any action. 
Republicans in the Florida Senate are battling over who will take over as president in 2022 by investing in other lawmakers. Matt Dixon with Politico Florida reports that a finance committee controlled by Senator Kathleen Pasadomo of Naples gave a total of $85,000 to three Republicans who are running for the Senate next year. And a PAC controlled by Senator Travis Hudson of Palm Coast matched that by donating a total of $85,000 to the same three candidates. Now, Pasadomo and Hudson are both hoping to become Senate president in 2022. So far, the race has been free of the ugliness that sometimes mars these leadership campaigns in Tallahassee. Now, while the race technically is for leadership of the Senate Republican caucus, it's actually a de facto bid for Senate president because the GOP controls the chamber. Democrats need three more seats to take over. They have a statistical chance of doing it, but it's really not likely to happen next year. However, things could change substantially by the time the elections of 2022 take place. That's why Pasadomo and Hudson are trying to get their ducks in a row. The mission of the ABLE Trust is to provide opportunities for successful employment for Floridians with disabilities. That organization was created by the state legislature in 1990 and has helped put thousands of individuals with disabilities to work. Now, though, the agency is in turmoil, and at the center of that storm is the state education commissioner, Richard Corcoran. Anna Ceballos is a reporter for News Service of Florida, and she broke the story. So about, what was it, about three weeks ago, we, we, we wrote a story about uh, Richard Corcoran, the Education Commissioner for Florida, wanting to investigate the ABLE Trust, which is an organization, that, a nonprofit organization out of the division, a division in the Education Department, um, and he just wanted he he got word that there were some concerns with potential misuse of millions of dollars that there was a, uh, a separate entity created by the nonprofit that was not allowed by the legislature or by statute, and uh, he just wanted to do a full investigation, a full audit, full everything. He called for the freezing of all financial accounts. Um, he wanted everyone gone, all the board members, all the leadership, and as far as we know, as of yesterday, um, leadership is gone, but we have not gotten any other updates on what the demands, where, where the, what the status of the demands are. Now, what exactly were Commissioner Corbin's concerns about the ABLE Trust? He was concerned that the ABLE Trust created the ABLE Trust uh, Foundation. It's a char- the charity foundation, uh, and that they were potentially using millions of dollars every year without the permission of statute to maybe potentially uh, divert the money to them so that that money would not have to be diverted back to the legislature or to the state if they if it went unused so he wanted a full investigation on that now what is the able trust supposed to be doing for the state the able trust is an organization that was created by the legislature to help thousands of people with disabilities find and retain employment in the state so as of last year, they were helping about more than 45,000 people, just, you know, helping them with employment skills and, and making sure that they get the full benefits, making sure that they get all the, all the all their ducks in a row, really, when they want to make it out in the real world. Has that in any way been affected by the battle over who's going to be running Able Trust in Florida? Well, that's the big question, and I think it's been a rather frustrating part of my reporting where it's we have documents to back everything that we're saying right now, but there's it doesn't maybe the shakeup even 
move to even answering the phones. You know, you'll call the organization and I, I told them who I was that I was looking for information regarding how the how it was keeping alive and then there's no callbacks. There's the communications director, for example, has not returned an email in a month. Um, there's really no sign of life coming out from that organization since I started reporting this story. So really what we have is documents showing Corcoran telling them that they he wants 10 demands met, a letter from Karen Moore, who's a chairwoman from the Able Trust. She's the only remaining leader in that organization. And just, you know, uh, her words and no one else has been able to be to come publicly and say exactly what went on on the other side. And so it's it's a mystery in a way. So is, is the office pretty much shut down now? No, I believe it's still running. But even the Department of Education won't acknowledge whether, because in his letter he said, if all these demands are not met, we will shut you down. We don't know if all those demands have been met. I have asked them yesterday, as, as recently as yesterday, and we still don't know. So what do you think is happening next in this story? What's, what's going to be the next break? I think, because I even asked the governor, the governor has the power to appoint people to the board, the, the board that resigned, you know, the board members who resigned. They, he would be having a, a pretty critical role in creating the new leader, who, who the new leadership will be at that organization. How the, will they fix this problem, uh, according, in the eyes of, of, of Corcoran? And it will be interesting to see who they appoint what the new goals will be, whether the Able Trust Charity Foundation will be will dissolve, um, and if there's any findings of wrongdoing at this point, because we at this point it's all allegations raised by Corcoran, um, and we, I mean, we we will have to follow the paper trail as to whether you know there's audits, there's documents in terms of, you know, what exactly did they find, or is it just concern? And at this point, are we talking any potential criminal activity? Has has Corcoran alleged that? Well, there's no evidence of that yet, except Corcoran alleging that he would, if, if an investigation that he, if if he conducts an, edu- an investigation, that there will be, he will contact the proper authorities. He even said the IRS, the you know. Uh, just prosecutors, you know, he, he wants this prosecuted if there is any sign of wrongdoing. But this is just a threat at the moment because he hasn't called any authorities that we're aware of. So we, we really don't know if there's any wrongdoing that is. I always close my interviews by asking, is there anything I should have asked you that I didn't ask you or something that you wanted to say that you did not have the chance to say? You know, I always ask that too. <laughs> uh you know, I think it's important to know that based on my interviews with sources who are familiar with this organization, they've been saying that there's been issues going on for a number of years even. And that the fact that it's going out, now, that this is becoming public, it kind of seems like it was just brewing for years and then the issues were you know, they finally came to light and someone did something about it. I don't know 
I could not say if everything that Corcoran is saying in that letter, if there's evidence to back it up. But there seems to be a consensus that there was concern about how this organization and this nonprofit organization was being run. And um, I mean, I, I think a lot of people were happy, even people who didn't like Corcoran were very happy to see some shakeup being done. Uh, he was praised when the story came out. I think Congressman Matt Gates, Allison Tant, she praised, you know, any leadership or any power move really to shake this organization up because they were very concerned that people who are very vulnerable were not being served or the intent of the organization was not being uh, carried out to its full extent. And so people were relieved, I think, to see someone take charge and see some change in, in, in how this organization can be carried out or the, the intent of the organization. Hey, thank you so much for joining us today, Ani. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. On today's calendar, the Pinellas County Legislative Delegation will meet as it prepares for the 2020 session. That's happening at 9 a.m. St. Petersburg College, Clearwater Campus. The Martin County Legislative Delegation is doing the very same thing. They're meeting at Indian River State College in Stewart. That starts at 10. The Florida Supreme Court is expected to issue its weekly opinions. That's 11 a.m. A joint House and Senate panel will take up a detailed report about the state's finances and budget picture today. The Joint Legislative Budget Commission will receive a presentation about the long-range financial outlook. Now, a draft version of that report projects the state will have a relatively small surplus, about $290 million, for the upcoming fiscal year. That meeting happens at 1 o'clock in the Knott Building across the street from the state capitol. The advocacy group called Florida Voices for Health will start a two-day summit today with speakers including Health News Florida founder Carol Gentry, who is always worth a listen. That's at 1 p.m. at the Space Coast Health Foundation Center for Collaboration in Rockledge. Time now for the continuing adventures of Florida Man, the guy who puts the duh in Florida. 19-year-old Kyle McGill Walker of St. Augustine is accused of pulling a gun on a woman after she refused to try his vape pen at a McDonald's. The victim told deputies she was approached by Walker, who offered her a hit of his vape pen. When she refused, she says he lifted his shirt, displayed a gun, and then actually pulled it out of his pants. Walker is charged with aggravated assault with a deadly weapon. No word on the fate of the vape pen. And deputies say a homeless Florida man smashed at least 20 vehicles with rocks and a belt buckle before falling asleep on a nearby bench. The Okaloosa County Sheriff's Office says 30-year-old Justin James Wilson faces 14 felony and 6 misdemeanor counts. Damages are estimated at $30,000 to the cars that were parked at the Holiday Inn Resort on Okaloosa Island. When questioned by authorities, he said it happened because Donald Trump owes me $1 trillion. Wilson also claimed the cars he damaged are all owned by the Mafia. That's it for this edition of Sunrise. Thanks today to Peter Schorsch of Florida Politics, Anna Sebalius with News Service of Florida, and Matt Dixon of Politico Florida, also known around town as Anna's fiance. It really is a small world after all. I'm Rick Flagg, reporting for Florida Politics. 